what does it mean to be proactive and where to invest first and what is proactive management and also in addition, what is proactive obsolescence management. That's Bjorn Bartels, Managing Director at AMSIS. He's an endorsed trainer of the International Institute of Obsolescence Management, or IIOM, an acknowledged expert within the DKE ISO, and an active member of the Component Obsolescence Group. I've seen companies, they will receive every notification that is out there in the market. They consider themselves as being proactive, and obviously that is wrong. Hi, my name is Bjorn. I'm Managing Director of AMSIS Applicable Management Systems. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to The Intelligent Engine, a podcast that lives in the heart of the electronics industry, brought to you by Silicon Expert. Silicon Expert is all about data-driven decisions with a human-driven experience. We mitigate risk and manage compliance from design through sustainment, the knowledge experience and thought leadership of the team, partners, and those we interact with every day expose unique aspects of the electronics industry and the product life cycles that live within it. These are the stories that fuel the intelligent engine. Today's spotlight is on AMSYS, a European company that has dedicated itself to keeping companies away from falling off the cliff that is electronic component obsolescence. Thanks to extensive experiences in a vast range of industry sectors over many years, AMSYS can analyze processes extremely fast to design, implement, and digitize necessary tools. We have Bjorn Bartels with us today, Managing Director at AMSYS. He has a master's degree in international business and a German diploma in industrial engineering. He's working in the field of consultancy by supporting his global customers with obsolescence management core competencies and tactics for many years. Buren successfully developed, implemented, and managed reactive, proactive, and strategic obsolescence management within a variety of companies. Bjorn, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the episode. I think we can agree that obsolescence is an industry agnostic plague, uh, and you apparently gravitate to them, uh, never giving a thought of questionable part availability. I'm so interested in how you got into vintage cars, especially a vintage American car. I mean, a 67 Mustang, that's rare here in the U.S., to get a 67 Mustang in Germany, let alone the parts for a 67 Mustang, did you just decide, I want to find the most difficult hobby there is? I always love to do things with my hands, especially now being a consultant, leading my own company. That's just for me, time to take off, getting my hands dirty, oily, and just smell the gas. I've always been into cars. And actually, we started AMSYS and with the money I saved over years for that vintage Mustang and so on. So only a couple of years later, after we started AMSYS back in 2013, I was finally able to get some of the money out of the company again and make my dream come true to <laughs> buy that vintage car, having it restored and so on. I, I didn't do full restoring frame-off because I cannot weld. However, I'm good when it comes to engines and the electrical, simple electrical side of, of cars and, and restoring that. And after four, uh, nearly five years, I'm not finally done. Problem is, I, I finished 
I think, the end of last year. And since then, it's just sitting there in my garage because <laughs> I never bought the car for driving. It was just really just the hobby. And spare part supply, fortunately, is good. However, with some 3D printing and doing stuff by myself, it is possible to do a great job in the end. Tell me about the 3D printing. Did you actually print parts? I did. It was just like for the quarter window, one handle was broken and I could <laughs> either replace the full quarter wind, what I was not willing for, or just actually print that little handle. So yeah, <laughs> it works. <laughs> I guess it's easier to uh, replace a, a physical component like that than an electronic component with 3D printers. That's a game changer to be able to do something like that years ago would have been unthinkable. Yeah, right. I mean, even um, when it comes to less when I started was that many years ago, digging myself deeper into the management approaches and building up stable processes and disciplines and so on. 3D uh, printing, additive manufacturing was still not even real thinkable. And, and today mm -hmm. it is actually becoming a solution um, to some problems when it comes to mechanical parts. Hope it will evolve even further. Were you already interested in obsolescence when you started your dream of restoring a vintage Mustang? When I started, I was already completely into the matter of obsolescence and its management. However, not from my early days so to say. So I do a dual course studies when I got my first diploma in industrial engineering, meaning I was studying and working at the same time. And I was working for a major supplier in the aerospace and defense industry by that time. And I was able to hop through different departments. And I realized that obsolescence, discontinuations, constant changes are giving big and huge headaches to all different departments. And I started in the field of obsolescence and management then when I was finally able to write my thesis, what was actually about how to make the world a little better, how to come up with stable processes when, when it comes to reactive obsolescence management approaches, also with proactive risk mitigation strategies. Fortunately, later on, that company did give me a proper contract. I was able to roll out what I did in theory beforehand on a global scale, including not only that company and its subsidiaries, but also their direct suppliers, the manufacturers, plus the customers, because overcoming the hurdles of obsolescence and discontinuation always require a good cooperative effort throughout the whole supply chain. This is how it started. So this was an aerospace company. Certainly. I think that's such an interesting point you bring up about how far up and down the supply chain that you need to look. And especially at an aerospace company where the level of compliance legislation that you have to be aware of is so much more intense than it would be for a consumer electronic product. The stakes are a little higher when you're talking about aerospace. Certainly, but it's not only aerospace. Obsolescence and, and its management, it's really predominant in the aerospace sector for mm -hmm. decades already because we're talking about lifespans of 30, 40, 50 years and plus and qualification requirements and, and safety critical components. But it's not only in, in aerospace. If I look at our customer base that we have today, they are coming from the transportation industry that have similar requirements when it comes to safety critical components, not only in aerospace 
marine or military. Same applies for mm. the automotive or medical technology environment and energy plant construction and, and overall general automation. Consumer electronics, they are driving the market when it comes to computers, entertainment, communication. But um, certainly they do have their requirements as well, but not as strict as in the other industry that are really facing the most problems when it comes to obsolescence and its management. Let's talk a little bit about the prerequisites that need to be created in order to successfully introduce lifecycle management disciplines. It seems like a mental state that you have to arrive to before you even can think about that. Exactly. First thing um, that needs to be understood is I think that change is inevitable. When it, whether it comes to obsolescence or shortages allocation, just looking back at a couple of years, what changed over the years when it comes to technologies. We do have technological evolution on the market, downscaling of ICs according to Moore's law, who observe that the number of transistors in a dense integrated circuit doubles pretty much every two years. And he already stated that back in the 60s, and this is right till today, so to say. We have technology revolution that makes complete technologies obsolete. A good example here is how we consume movies or how we transport movies to one place to another, coming from the tape over VHS, over compact disc to DVD, Blu-ray and flash disc. We don't even need that technology anymore because we're screaming and our major concern is a stable Wi-Fi connection to consume the movies in the end. So making a complete technology, how to transport movies, completely obsolete. And, and not just one obsolete technology, but you just went through about a half a dozen technologies that we went through in such an incredibly short span of time. And you think about the amount of investment in the the infrastructure and equipment needed for each one of those formats, and they're all gone. You're so right. I sometimes wonder how we're going to transform to IoT and Industry 4.0 with the engineers still being dated back in Industry 3.0, trying to make contracts um, for longevity support and supply over 30 years and plus uh, without completely ignoring the market forces <laughs> that are out there when it comes to the thriving driving technologies and entertainment and communication. Who could have told me back in, in 25 or 26 that today we all rely on, on our smartphones and we cannot live without these smartphones anymore. Whilst only 14 years ago, back in 2007, this is basically the state where we all think the first smartphone was introduced to the market when Steve Jobs um, went to the stage on one of his Apple events and he pronounced back in 2007, I got one more thing. And that's, <laughs> as I just said, that's 14 years ago. And, and we cannot live without these smart devices anymore, controlling our housing and everyone is having a flat flat screen TV and so on. But still, there's so many individuals out there trying to contract for 30 years plus and, and without completely ignoring the state um, of constant change and technologies becoming obsolete. And that's, for me, sometimes hard to do or to assist people with their change in, in thinking in a complete different direction and accepting how today's markets and the world's just function. The idea that not only are things changing 
rapidly, but it seems to me like if you're thinking about a a 30-year contract, you have to come to peace with the, the, the idea that you have no idea what the world will look like in 30 years. Just think about a functional requirement of a technology that exists today and you want to have it maintained over the next 30 years. And now think 30 (laughs) years back, how many trucks might have come to my um, company just having a computer there that have this that has the same capabilities as my smartphone that I'm having in my pocket each and every day. Look in the future, it's what is nearly impossible. Just think one and a half years back or two years back. Who would have told you that we will be in a market of, of allocation and shortage? Who in the world could have predicted that we would have been sitting at home waiting for vaccination, not being able to see family and friends and being stuck for, yeah, nearly one and a half years. And you make such a good point about it wasn't only the pandemic. We've got the ship being stuck in the Suez Canal and and so many other factors here. What other factors um, do you think contributed to shortages of chips? We have seen shortages before, like the MLCC shortage that just um, happened a couple of years back and so on. The pandemic did make the problem even worse when the demand for electronic components did just rise when people were sitting at home during the Mm. pandemic. They wanted to get entertained. So general disruption in production and supply chains with complete country shutdowns. However, there was also thunderstorms in the U.S., fires in Japan, power outages, lack of of truck drivers and shortage and general logistic capabilities. I think what made the problems really worse in the end was a complete misunderstanding how to interpret Toyota's just-in-time principle Mm -hmm. that was completely misunderstood because it is a great idea to place the warehouse on the streets and have everything delivered just in time, but no one ever said to do it for each and every component and Uh item that you need to manufacture or maintain your overall product or assembly. No one asked that question before, to have the critical items in stock to actually mitigate risk. Do you think that just-in-time is a concept that we have to abandon? Oh, not at all. Just-in-time is is, is a great principle, but it should only be applied for non-critical component because we have to understand change does happen all the time. My major concern of each and every company that either produces or maintains high capital investment goods to get the right items in the expected quality, in the correct quantity, in time, at the right place for the desired price. And the question we need to answer is, how high is the risk if this is not happening because something in my environment, I'm not alone in this world. I do have my suppliers, manufacturers. I do have my customers. I do have factors that I cannot even influence. What happens if this is not taking place? And how can I possibly forecast that to identify high risk components and items to mitigate that risk? So there's the fundamental question. You listed a really long list of important items to note. The right item, 
the right quality, the right quantity, the right place at the right price, the fundamental question becomes, what if I can't get that? Tell us a little bit about obsolescence versus just availability. Obsolescence in the past was often connected to general availability. The question is, was, what does availability mean? And it depends to whom am I talking. If I would possibly talk to a purchaser and ask that individual on what's the availability of a certain component or item, that individual might answer me, okay, the availability on the market is given. So my next question would be, so what does availability mean? Is it available on from a trusted source or is it available from eBay? If I talk to a technician afterward and ask that individual on what that person understands under the term availability, that individual might look at their machinery, being a maintainer, looking at the machinery, still running. Yeah, it is still available there. Mm. It did not break down. It didn't fail yet. It is available in my overall application. Next thing, I talk to a logistics provider. That individual might look just at the warehouse and tell me, okay, this item is still available in my warehouse. The question is, under which condition and still to the correct quantity? Mm. So, sure, availability does have to do with obsolescence overall. However, looking at newer standards that were just recently published, for example, the IC 6242 obsolescence management standard that was republished and completely redone back in um, 2019, at the point in time when an item is becoming obsolete or is defined as being obsolete, as being no longer in production by the manufacturer to its original specification. Mm. I was a German spokesman under this international standards division. It was great fun. And there's some other standards out there looking, um, for example, at the U.S. market and the SD22 standards that talks about DMSMS. And although we use the same wording, that can be a misunderstanding and miscommunication and clear terms and definitions actually do help not only for our day-to-day business communication, but also in the end and contract. And people need to understand that to really place the minimum fundamentals on starting off a good management discipline when it comes to life cycle and obsolescence management. In my seminars and trainings, I, I love to ask the question to the audience if they could possibly give me a percentage, um, what they would feel comfortable with on how good a set of information needs to be so that they can take the right decisions in the end. And the answer usually is 50%, 60%, 70%. Hmm. And that's all the wrong answers because there's only one answer. I need 100% correct information to take good decision in the end. But yes, in a real life environment, we are usually already happy with that 60 to 70% of correct information because that would already be a huge improvement in our day-to-day life. How does the information get from production to development and vice versa, support and service, all these various levels within the organization and outside the organization? Do you work with your clients on the actual process of communication as well? 
Oh, yes, we do. First of all, if we look in, into companies themselves internally, usually it's somewhere written down how they have to communicate between all these different departments. And it's written down in, in handbooks, guidebooks, processes, documents, <laughs> forms, records, data, and so on. But I've seen it so often that there's written down processes that are not applied in real life. There's real life processing methodologies that are nowhere written down and some hybrids of these. I'm not alone in this world. I do have my suppliers, my manufacturers on the one hand of the supply chain. I have my clients, my customers on, on the other hand. And they have their own written rules that might be similar to the rules that I have written down internally in my company, but they're certainly not the same. Just to give you an example, just think about that. Everyone just wants to do a good job. And if we talk about product changes and discontinuations, they just spread it along the supply chain. And I sometimes ask the question to our clients, hey, have you ever defined where these product discontinuations and product changes arrive in your company? And pretty often the answer is, oh, no. So <laughs> certainly it might happen that the same information might end up in different departments, for example, development and production. And what usually happens then is the same as if I would give two individuals that are sitting in two different rooms the same tasks, but with different information access they have in, mm. and certainly they will come back to me with two different results. And that's a waste of resources. And me being a process consultant, that's just the worst case scenario because one might come back to me and just telling me, hey, we're having a problem here. We're doing a last time buy. And for exactly the same problem, another individual is coming back to me and just telling me, hey, I, find an, I found an um, alternative component. And the third individual is then suddenly coming back to me and telling me, hey, I'm, we're doing a redesign on the next <laughs> higher assembly. And that's making it really messed up. Let's talk a little bit about how we can become more proactive and, and less reactive to things. What does it mean to be yeah. proactive yeah. And, and where to invest first? And what the hell is proactive management? And also, in addition, what is proactive obsolescence management? Being proactive, I've seen companies just trying to fetch all the... PCNs, product change notifications, and product discontinuance notifications that are out there in the market. They will receive every notification that is out there in the market. They consider themselves as being proactive. And obviously, that is wrong because once a PCN or PDN is issued, there is certainty yeah. that you will encounter a problem. So the only way to now overcome the problem is actually to be a hopefully good, reactive approach to that problem that is just standing in front of your door. It's like it's already too late. You're All you're doing now is fixing a problem that you've created. Exactly. And this is the situation where most of the companies are in right now, and they are all trying to be reactive to obsolescence problems that are out there and, and the shortages. And, and I really have to line out that those who understood what really being proactive means and how to do proper risk analysis and applying proper methodologies before the COVID pandemic that is out there and are better off now. Let's talk about what actually being proactive means. And it's completely different to what we have been taught over the last more or less decades. And the paradigm shift needs to take place to to make that happen because being proactive actually 
doesn't start as late as being in the utilization phase of my product that I'm either producing or that I try to maintain. It starts way earlier. It starts in, in the engineering department should start with the first idea to my product where I'm still in, in the system requirements phase of my overall development. And what has been taught over the last decades when it comes to engineering, it was always taught, okay, we have to design the cost, make it cheap, design to market, make it fast. But a real focus that would bring real value is if we would more consider the quality and try to design to either resist obsolescence completely with no more hardware software dependencies, with modular designs, with seven replacement items already designed in before release and approval of our own products. And this is completely in contradiction to what was taught because in the end, having all this now really more complex engineering the early stages of my product lifecycle, it will not be as cheap anymore as it was before. And more or less likely, maybe even my product will be launched to the market, maybe a little bit later, but coming to a resilient design would really do the trick and apply proper risk management approaches as early as possible in my preliminary design reviews. When a client comes to you, they've somehow come to the conclusion that they need your advice or they need your help is, <laughs> I'm imagining that a lot of times that might be driven by the result of some unpleasant situation. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're so right. No one is calling us up or sends in an email because they just heard the sexy word obsolescence <laughs> and they just want to invest in some of its management. Most of the individuals um, that get in touch with us and they have experienced obsolescence itself or shortages, they wasted a few thousands or even million US dollars or euros. When we have a web conference, they have a complete scratched face and they just tell me, hey, Bjorn, that did hurt. And we really just <laughs> wasted valuable resources. We don't want to do this again. I saw you talking on one of the conferences. You told me you can help. So please do. So let's get that straight first. And then the most common question is that people are seeing that we are providing a full-scale obsolescence management software solution, the lifecycle management client. That sounds and like an easy fix. It sounds like <laughs> an easy fix, but for most of the companies, to be honest, don't get me wrong, but this is the wrong approach to, to start off because in the end, the best software in the world alone without understanding how the software works will never ever solve their problems on, on discontinuation and shortage. We do provide the best software that is out there in the market when it comes to managing obsolescence using the Silicon Expert data, but just installing our software that, or just purchasing a license to our software does not do the trick itself. I think everyone needs to understand that software in the end is driven by processes and methodologies. 
whilst these processes and methodologies are only working well if you have good people. And good people in the end need the right relationships internally within their company, but also externally throughout the whole supply chain and automate their overall management disciplines in a tailored software. So first they should think about cooperative efforts through all verticals of their supply chain with suppliers, with the manufacturers, with their clients in the end to come up with, with good contracts to come out of which position where on the one hand um, my customer requires 30 years lifetime expected but on the other hand I only get two years guarantee and for an already discontinued items. So everyone should build um, its own networks as networks only harm those who don't have one. Afterwards come good contracts and I have to set up stable communication channels because let's get that straight again. Software without good data will not help me in the end as well. And software where no one logs in, so without clear internal responsibilities, is not much of, of a help either. The software is just the end story that is then hopefully completely automating in my internal um, processes that I have come up with. And it also needs an upfront invest because for risk mitigation, it is, I like to compare it with a kind of insurance. I have to invest now to save some money and pain later on when a problem might occur. Ah, interesting. When those problems do occur, uh, what's been the best way to communicate with your customers regarding these issues of supply chain and obsolescence? Any specific examples you can think of? Oh, yes. When a purchaser asks the question, what do you think, how long or when this item will become obsolete? And, and that individual is asking the question through the supply chain. Most likely the answer is, I don't know. It's a high runner item. We are not planning to obsolete it by now. <laughs> we have no plans at this time. <laughs> we have no plans at this time. So just by altering the question a little might come to a way better answer. It's like not asking the question like, hey, when are you planning to obsolete this item? But asking the question, how long can you guarantee me to uh... supply that item might result in a way better answer than asking the original question. And so we do assist our customers asking the right questions and, and so on throughout the whole supply chain as well, yeah. Bjorn, any helpful lessons learned or words of wisdom you've received that you'd be willing to share with our listeners? Yes. Several years ago, I, I stumbled across the NASA 100 rules for project managers. They are not so strict. It's more or less a collections of lessons learned that were published back in 23, I think, that should give an instru instructive to managers of NASA spaceflight operations. However, I figured out they are not only applicable um, for project managers, but also for ops lessons and supply chain managers and lifecycle um, managers, or however you want to call them. And there's two rules I, I really like the most out of these 100 plus rules. One rule is the number 62, a rule that states not using modern techniques like computer systems is a great mistake. But forgetting that computers only stimulates thinking is still a greater mistake. So meaning what I lined out previously is 
in the end, if you really want to do great in obsolescence management, the case management, risk analysis, and so on, Excel spreadsheets alone will not do the job. You need a proper software application to steer internal processes. However, just buying license keys to that software will not do the trick itself either. Everyone who's working with our application needs to understand not only how it works, but has to implement individual tailored processes that are then built to individual needs. That has been a recurring theme unintentionally on this podcast since the very first episode <laughs> about how no system, no software is able to accomplish what we need it to without the right people doing the work. Read for me NASA's rule number 32, would you? NASA's rule number 32, that's really my favorite, where I end all my seminars and trainings with, it lines out as follows. People have reasons for doing things the way they do them. Most people want to do a good job. And if they don't, the problem is they probably don't know how or exactly what is expected. And seriously, I think we all know and I have never seen a person who stand up, stands up in the morning, gets ready to work, and sets up his or her goal like, today, really? I only want to do a shitty job. Never, <laughs> ever met such a person. <laughs> okay, we all know it only applies to 99.9%. .9%. Everyone knows one person who at least we think stands up that way, but that's not correct. I love it. This has been really fun. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I, I think this is uh, really one of the most interesting and, and most fun discussions we've had yet on this podcast. This has been great. Thank you. It was great being a part of that. I'd like to thank our audience for tuning in and thank AMSYS for sponsoring this episode of the Silicon Expert Intelligent Engine. Tune into new episodes that will delve into more of the electronics industry. Upcoming topics will include how nice-to-have technologies are now taking a front seat and an examination of the ever-expanding reach of Edge AI. Be sure to share our podcast with your colleagues and friends. You can also sign up to be on our email list to receive updates and the opportunity to provide your input on future topics. Go to siliconexpert.com podcast to sign up. Until next time, keep the data flowing.